We are in a series on sacraments, asking the question, why do we practice these? What are the sacraments? Why do we practice those? This morning, everything is really going to be driven to the close of our service this, this morning with an opportunity to affirm the baptismal vow, the baptismal covenant that was made at our baptism. That's what we're driving towards here this morning. But before we do that, we need to be aware and and acknowledge what it is that we're talking about when we talk about baptism. So with that end in mind, and what that'll look like is the opportunity for you individually to affirm your vows that were made at your baptism and receive anointing. Don't be weirded out by that. First service was an incredibly sacred moment that happened in this space. Look forward to this. All right, and I will try to get through all of my stuff quickly because that's the, that's the fun part, all right? What are the sacraments? Well, in, in God's intimate knowledge of creation, his creation, God gives us some very tangibles through which we can experience grace. He gives us um, the church calendar of the year. He gives us uh, a Sabbath, a weekly day of rest, and he gives us sacraments all of which connect us materially to an unseen, immortal God. To the Greeks, sacrament really means mystery, but not the same kind of mystery that we would understand mystery. For us, a mystery is a problem that needs to be solved. There's a mystery out there. We've got to identify the problem. We've got to solve it. That's how we're wired. But to the Greeks, mystery was something that had been hidden, but now it's revealed. And they looked at the person of Jesus Christ and they said, ah, this was God who once was hidden from us and now is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And the sacraments reflect that. Moreover, or in addition to that, the Greeks' understanding of sacraments, this was the vow or the commitment that a Roman soldier made when he began his service to Caesar. He made a sacrament. That was his vow, to serve Caesar So that's a bit of the linguistic background of where we get this term sacrament. The mystery that is disclosed, the sacrament, is really tied to the grace of God expressed in Jesus Christ. The vow that the sacraments proclaim is the life surrendered to Jesus. The grace of God is less something for us to understand as it is something for us to experience in and throughout our human life. God's grace is to be experienced. So what what am I talking about when I'm talking about grace? When I talk about grace, this is what I mean. It's an unmerited, undeserved favor of an eternal scope. Thus, a healthy appreciation of grace requires both an awareness of our current and our past need for forgiveness in our life, as well as the hope for a future glory that we cannot obtain on our own. We must be given this. It is a gift. Grace is a gift. And lastly, and I think we forget about this too often, the the grace of God is experienced in relationship with God. So often we think of the grace of God, the favor of God, as blessings that God pours out on us, and absolutely God desires to bless his creation. And God does that. Sometimes we notice it. Sometimes we don't. But we often sit back and we say, God, just bless me. Bless me. But I don't actually want to have the responsibility of being in relationship with you, 
a right relationship with you. And the grace of God is best, most accurately, most deeply experienced within the relationship that we have with our Creator God. The sacraments, and specifically the sacrament of baptism, speaks to that. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. For the Christian, the sacraments are visible form of grace. Or St. Augustine describes the sacrament as visible words. For those who do not consider themselves Christ followers, the sacraments point to the relationship that is to be experienced between humanity and the Creator. If we look closely at what is said and what we proclaim in the sacraments, we can begin to understand this. One note before we start talking about baptism. Last week, Brad said that anytime we talk about the sacraments here within our covenant fellowship, we stand in a position of unity and we stand in a posture of humility. And I have been praying like mad since Brad asked me to preach on this. That above everything and anything else, that this morning would be about unifying the church. And that anything that I have to say that the Lord would speak through me would be received with a heart of humility. And delivered, more so, more importantly, delivered with a heart of humility. So let's jump in and talk about baptism. When I was... uh, before the board of ministerium, the ministerial board on the East Coast Conference, which was interviewing me to determine if I was adequate to be uh, licensed by the Evangelical Covenant to serve as a pastor. So I was really intimidated by this group, right? And I had written all kinds of papers, and admittedly, my weakest argument of all my papers was my position on the sacraments. I didn't really know. It was not very formed in my mind, so I I tried to throw in some big words to make it sound like I knew what I was talking about. And they were like bears to honey. We got to that portion, and they started asking me questions, and pretty soon I'm sweating bullets because I don't know how to answer this. And I'm fumbling my way through it, and I'm seeing half of the pastors around that table nodding in agreement, and the other half are shaking their heads. And I thought, how can this be? How can half of my colleagues agree with me and the other half not. And pretty soon, those who were in disagreement started asking questions and those who were in agreement started defending me. And this went on for about 12 minutes without me saying a word. And finally, I I sheepishly raised my hand and I asked, do I still need to be here uh, for, for this ongoing argument that's happening? But in that, I recognize that when we're talking about baptism, there are different opinions. This is an issue that is divisive. What is baptism? It's an outward expression of an inward and invisible grace, that unmerited, undeserved favor. Baptism as a symbol of sacred expression is not unique to Christianity, okay? Other religions practice baptism. We know right in the scriptures that there was baptism that was going on before Christian baptism. John the Baptist, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. It says this. It also will be up on the screens. This, this is what John the Baptist was doing. I mean, this, this guy must have understood baptism because it was right in his name. John the Baptist, he gets it. That's not really his name. Uh, John is, but they didn't, you know, his last name wasn't Baptist. Uh, but John the Baptist In those days, it says, when John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of of heaven has come near. I baptize you, he goes on to say in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, 
whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John was preaching and uh, inviting people into a baptism of repentance, saying to them, God is about to do something incredible. You need to get yourselves ready. Turn away from your sinfulness. Turn away from your uh, anger towards God and turn towards God and get ready for what God is doing. That's what, all, in a nutshell, what, what John was presenting. This is not the same as Christian baptism. John was not baptizing people in the name of Jesus. Okay, although it's an interesting story, right? When Jesus enters into the water, and I encourage you to look at this, John all of a sudden is really conflicted. Who am I to baptize you? This is such an important matter of clarification that that the Apostle Paul, when talking to the church in Ephesus, as they were looking around their other churches in the region, and they they were looking and saying, how come the Spirit of God is not working in us like the Spirit of God is working over here, like in Philippi? And Paul asks them, he goes, well, what baptism did you receive? And they said, we received the baptism of John. And Paul goes, oh, you need to receive the baptism of Christ, of Jesus. And they were baptized in the name of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came and filled them. Okay? Baptism is not the same across all spectrums. What is this invisible grace? What is Christian baptism? We again turn to Paul and look in Romans, and this is what he says, and if you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 6. Listen carefully. There are some key words that Paul comes back to over and over and over again in this passage. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that the grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were, therefore, buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul here is talking about baptism as being an, a really deeply unifying and identifying quality and characteristic for us as Christ followers. We identify with Jesus Christ in his death and likewise in his resurrection. Our sinful nature is crucified with Christ. That is that death part so that we might live in right relationship with God, and that we might look forward, look ahead to that day when all will be brought before God, when we will all be raised, because that's what happened to Jesus. We identify with Jesus in this baptism. 
Likewise, we identify with one another. All who have been baptized in the name of Jesus. There is a, kin, a kinship there, brothers and sisters. That is how it's meant to be. We identify with Jesus. We are identified with one another. We are unified in Jesus. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we are unified with one another in the ecclesia, which is, is not until we get the, the translations of the scripture into German does ecclesia actually become church. Ecclesia is really more the movement of God expressed in the faithful followers of Jesus. The movement of God. That's the ecclesia, and we are united in the ecclesia, in this movement of God into his broken and fallen world. So this is what Christian baptism is meant to be. We are unified with Christ. We identify with Christ. We are identified with one another. We are unified together as believers. All of this sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Why on earth would the church fight battles over this? Friends, people have died over their conviction of baptism. It's not just, well, they believe one thing, we believe another, and our services are shorter, which means we get to Perkins first. Praise God. It's much deeper than that. Okay? I have been racking my brains for years to try to figure out how, could, how do we illustrate the differences that people view baptism around, how, how they see this sacred act differently, and how it has been so divisive in, in the church. I came up with an illustration. It is by no means a perfect illustration, okay? So please don't accost me in the lobby afterwards and say, well, Chris, if you thought about this, uh, my illustration breaks down very quickly. But in broad brush strokes, these are kind of the differences, or what's at the heart of the differences of of baptism. On one extreme, on one uh, understanding of baptism, which is really really the Catholic and Orthodox view of baptism, the the act of baptism and the salvation, the grace extended, received, and welcomed in salvation, are synonymous. They happen at the same time. Okay, so if, if we could for a moment just pretend that we are, uh, this room represents our sinful nature as humanity. And some of you are thinking, what? There's no sin in church. Just look at the person next to you. Come on. We're all sinners. Let's pretend this room represents our condition as people. Yet there's something in our heart that knows we are called to something more. We have to get out of this sinful condition out of this sinful room, out of this broken relationship with God. We have to get free. What the, 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 the Catholic, really the Orthodox, very traditional view of baptism would say is that God suddenly proclaims in the person of Jesus Christ, here is the door, here is how you get out. And the door only exists because the sign of baptism exists. Okay, so I like this. It says emergency exit only on this door here. And the reason I'm told that's there is because there's a closet back there and that's a mess and Chris doesn't want people uh, looking at that. But this door wouldn't appear if not by the grace of God. God makes the door appear and God likewise, as the door appears, says the way to enter through this door is through baptism. And as you are baptized, you go through this door from death into life. They are together. The grace of God is tied with this action of baptism. If the sign doesn't exist... The grace is not there. Likewise, the grace can't be understood without the sign clearly marking this is what's going on. 
So it's synonymous. When we are baptized, we receive and we enter into the grace of God. Okay, the two happen intricately. Well, in that understanding, it makes sense, right? The people scoop up their babies with them and make a break for the door. I want my baby baptized. They need to be in the grace of God. This is all understood to be uh, originated by and held by God in grace. He creates grace, gave it to us, and therefore it's ours. I can understand why people grab up their infants and go through that door. And we, and we practice infant baptism here. We'll get to that in a moment. Another uh, position, which is more in response to that, is to say, you know, we're not comfortable with really the word sacraments at all, that there's a, a grace that's given in and through this, so we won't even call them sacraments, they're ordinances. These are things that have been um, instructed or, or um, given to us by God and said, you must do this. Um, and so in that situation, we might have an exit sign up here, and the reason that we have that exit sign would be that we're all groping around in the dark trying to find our way out of here, and by divine intervention, by some miraculous work of God, we stumble upon a door and we suddenly find ourselves out in the bright, sunny lobby where there are cookies and coffee and we go, praise God that I'm not in that sanctuary anymore listening to that preacher. There is grace that we've experienced, but we don't even know what's going on until somebody says and points to the sign that is out there that says, hey, you've exited the building. You've exited. And then you go, is that what I did? Praise God, I was trapped in here. I didn't even realize it. Now I am free. And they say, you need to bear this sign with you now. You need to be baptized because now you're out and we have to have this unifying. And so they practice, that would be believer baptism, right? I once was lost, now I'm found. The emphasis, of, if the emphasis was placed on God's initiating work here with this sacrament, uh, expression of baptism, and this expression of baptism, it is much more the emphasis placed on um, that which the individual has discovered and is responding to the goodness and glory and grace of God. Okay? Clear as mud? We're getting there? All right. There is a third interpretation of baptism which ties the sign, which is baptism, and the event of salvation together a little more closely. And that might be assimilated or shown by the doors that we do have that have exit signs clearly above them. Okay? It's not hidden. It's there. If you want out of this condition... God is saying, here is, here is a sign. Enter through that. And as you approach that sign and enter into this baptism, there is salvation. There is grace that is extended to you. Sign, and as you go out, then we are sealed. We become part of the ecclesia, the movement, the koinonia, another big fancy Greek word for the fellowship of those who have been saved. We identify with one another in that way. Three Nuanced but significant differences in the way that individuals and that churches have looked at baptism. What's consistent in all of those? I would say this. Number one, God's grace is enough. God's grace is enough. God's grace is sufficient. Number two, there is an adoption. Isn't that a wonderful word? With baptism, with an acknowledgement of God's grace, with surrender of our lives unto him, there is an adoption into God's family. That's powerful. 
We are adopted into the family of God. We have unity, unity with others in God's ecclesia, in God's movement. We become family members who are driven to a common purpose of seeing God's kingdom grow here on this earth. And finally, we are sealed with a future hope of eternal resurrection. This is good news, church. We are sealed with a future hope of eternal resurrection. This is what is expressed by those expressions of the sacrament of baptism. Why do we baptize in the covenant church? Number one, and I think it's really the only reason ultimately that I recognize we need to do it. Jesus says to do it. Jesus says, be baptized. And so we take that seriously. If you have not been baptized, we say, you know what? Be baptized. It's good. This is a gift from God. Be baptized. Jesus commands it. Baptism is meant to be identifying and unifying. It's meant to be connecting individuals to the church and the church to Jesus Christ. If examination is an important part of communion, which Brad talked about last week, uh, that self-examination as we come forward to take communion, identification is a huge component, component of baptism. We identify with Jesus Christ. He identifies with his people. Now, what happens, this is getting now into some of the covenant distinctives. We stand in unity and with a posture of humility. And what happens when we approach baptism without that commitment? Suddenly, we start thinking that our interpretation of baptism is the only one. And ours must be the right one. And those who are over here start looking at those who profess something else and say, how dare you suggest that you are worthy in some way, shape, or form of earning grace because that's what you do. And those who are over there that are looking at those over here say, and how would you even suppose to claim a salvation of something that you don't even remember happening? And we fight over this and we bicker over this and ultimately it divides us because we say we cannot be in the same room with one another if we can't come to an agreement on this. The covenant stance, what we say is we approach this with humility and unity. And at the end of the day, when I'm sitting next to a brother and a sister, they may not agree with me, but we choose to be united in spite of that. And many would argue that the covenant has taken the easy way out, and I would say that is not the easy way out. The easy way out would just simply to kick everybody out that doesn't agree with you. And by you, I mean me. Right? It's hard to be in fellowship with one another when we don't always see eye to eye. But we believe that if we can put a conviction and strive towards unity, if we can do that in a microcosm which is the church, maybe there's hope that the church worldwide could actually be united. Because a world that's outside of, of, of Christ, that looks at Christians, you know what they see? They see a whole bunch of division. They see us fighting over things they don't understand or don't care about, and they wonder, what on earth are these nuts doing? But if we can be unified, not all the same, but unified, that gives a powerful message. And Jesus himself says, they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Be unified with one another.
So we approach with humility and unity, and it is from that, stand, that position that we perform both believer and infant baptisms as well as infant dedication. Do not misinterpret this as not caring about baptism. We do care deeply about baptism, which is why we talk about this and why we encourage people towards baptism in whatever that expression is. But at the end of the day, our questions are thus. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? That he is the Son of God? That he went to the cross for your sins? Do you believe that? Do you trust Jesus? Are you willing to trust him with your life? Do you have a future hope of a resurrection and you desire to let Jesus break your heart for the rest of this broken, fallen world? And you say yes to all that, then we ask, have you been baptized? Yes, I have. Great! Would you join with us in this movement of the ecclesia? The movement to be God's people. We are seeking to practice one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Because salvation is not the result of baptism, but it is the realization in faith in Jesus Christ, we accept both believer and infant baptism as valid forms. However, to assume one form is legitimate and the other is illegitimate treads on our posture of humility and threatens to destroy the unity that we strive for. And if you're not comfortable with that, the covenant probably will not be a comfortable place for you. Those are strong words, and I do not speak them lightly but we are committed to unity and a posture of humility. With that in mind, it is important that we have the opportunity to take next steps, which gets to really what all of us are longing for, I think, this morning. A couple of next steps. Number one, if you have not been baptized, I encourage you, be baptized. We've got a baptism class coming up, believer baptism class, April 27th. Sign up for that and learn more about baptism so that you may be baptized, that we may celebrate with you and what Christ is doing and has done in your life. All right? If you're a parent and you have a child and you want to baptize your, your infant, get to the next baby blessing class, which is May 4th. We want you to be baptized. Okay? That's next step number one. Next step number two. If you've been baptized, either as an infant or as a believer in the past, I encourage you, celebrate your baptism. I just this morning wrote on our family calendar, and my wife and I have not had time to talk about this, so I'm announcing it to you and pray that she will extend grace. My baptism was February 17th, 1974. And so on February 17th, I plan to take a day where I just simply get away with God. I'll get the boys off to school, Allie, I promise, and then uh, I'll be home by dinner. But um, I want to get away so I can spend time with God and listen and reflect, say, God, what have you been doing in my heart this year? And what are you calling me to? Who are the people that you're breaking my heart for? Because I took vows, and vows were spoken over me as an infant that I would give my life and my heart to you. And that comes with a commitment. So I want to live into that. Celebrate it. Take a day. If you've got kids and you've baptized them as infants, celebrate their day. Light a candle. Take them out, one uh, individually, and say, um, uh, you know, we spoke these vows over you as, as mommy and daddy. And we're trying our best to live into what we promised you. And how do you think God is showing up in your life? Help them begin to process that. If you're a belief, experienced believer baptism and you, and you look back at your year and go, oh, I have not been walking with Jesus, let that be a moment of a wake-up call for you and renew those vows. 
Remember, we celebrate our birthdays. Let's celebrate our baptisms too. We got resources that are available for you to look at right there on that link. And lastly, we get to this morning, which is really the highlight of our morning. To have within the body of believers the opportunity to affirm the, the vows that were made at your baptism. This is for those in our midst who have been baptized. If you've not been baptized yet, be baptized. I already covered that in point number one. But for those of us who have been baptized, this morning we are providing you an opportunity to affirm the vows that you made at your baptism. This is not a sacrament. It is not meant to be confused with a sacrament. This is a service, a service here within the body of Christ that we are doing for one another. We will simply speak again the promises that you made or were made over you at your baptism and ask you to affirm those, should you want to, and then to come forward and receive anointing from our uh, members of our our church council and leadership. It's going to happen. And don't be weirded out by this, okay? Enter into it. Um, The band is going to sing a song which I think just speaks to God's love for us and our, our interaction with him beautifully. Reflect pray, consider if God is calling you to this and then we'll take it from there.